So yesterday afternoon, I was reviewing my sermon notes, sitting on the porch, nice summer day. And before you know it, my wife Molly came rather abruptly and from inside the house and came out on the front porch. And she said, what are you, is that you? What, what is that? What are you listening to? And, and turn it down. And the Bible says if you found a wife, you found a good thing. So it was good that she told me to turn it down, lest all the neighbors be frightened. Uh, I was I was Google searching things like most ominous soundtrack of all time. <laughs> most frightening soundtrack. Man, there's some weird stuff out there. Just organ pounding, screeching. The reason I was doing that is because I was thinking about Matthew 23, which is our text today. And in Matthew chapter 23, if there were a soundtrack, and there isn't, but if there were one, it would be ominous. It is the storm before the calm, if you will. Isaiah the prophet says that Jesus will be led away like a sheep to the slaughter in silence, but he's not silent yet. Uh, in, in no way, shape, or form is he silent yet. This is, as I say, the storm before the calm. In your, some of your Bibles, you might even have a heading over Matthew 23, um, even over the whole, over the whole chapter, some Bibles talking about the woes of Jesus. Well, Jesus is going to pronounce woe after woe after woe. In other words, official sentence of condemnation. And there's a series of woes. It's what this chapter is known for. And Jesus takes aim at the religious leaders for the nation of Israel, and he lets them have it. He lambasts them. He, he, this is lock and load time when it comes to Jesus going after these spiritual abusers. It is quite an awful thing that we see here with all of these woes. But we're not going to get to them today. Because before he unleashes his official statements of condemnation, I believe that starts in verse 13, the first 12 verses, Jesus is not taking aim at false teachers. Jesus is addressing the disciples and the crowds, and he's offering them help. If you will, he's helping those who've been spiritually abused. So they don't misunderstand. He's not launching at them. He's instructing them to help them understand even better why he is so opposed to the religious leaders. And so we'll get to the woes next time. We won't get to them this morning uh, as Jesus addresses these legalistic oppressors. But first he addresses the oppressed. If you're a note taker, I do have an outline today, and I'm going to highlight three mistakes, three mistakes believers need to avoid when dealing with legalists, three mistakes believers need to avoid when dealing with legalists. Number one, avoid overreacting, avoid overreacting. We'll see it in verses one to three. That's the first mistake we want to avoid. The second mistake we want to avoid would be avoid their compassionless hypocrisy. Avoid their compassionless hypocrisy. That's verses 3 to 4. And then the third mistake we'll highlight and take away from what Jesus teaches here in verses 1 to 12. Number three, avoid their pride. Avoid their pride. Verses 5 to 12. Legalism was vogue 
It is vogue. It always will be vogue until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, I should also say, so is license or licentiousness, which is the opposite. So legalism would be saying you must do these things in order to gain the favor of God, uh, sometimes just Bible things, but then in addition to those things, without any hope of someone meeting the obligation for you in the gospel. And so that's the problem here. The other problem is a real problem, license or licentiousness that says you don't have to do what God says, and God doesn't require anything. Uh, both are problematic Here in this text, legalism seems to be what's winning the day, it seems. And Jesus is going to help us. He might sound mean-spirited to you, depending on what you're used to hearing. I would remind you that he's helping the disciples and the masses so that they don't get taken advantage of by those who are those who want to do such things. So I read all of this through a lens of God loves us, perfectly wanting to help us, even if it means being very pointed and very sober and very serious because he will be those things. I'm thankful for this because I know what a problem legalism is, whether it's in my own heart sometimes or in the hearts of others. This is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so by example. Jesus isn't having a bad day. Jesus isn't losing his cool. Perfect self-control, absolute perfect self-control, doing what he does because he cares for sheep who should be cared for, but oftentimes shepherds are actually abusive. Ready to go? Hope you're ready to go. Number one, it's going to be exciting. Number one, avoid overreacting. That's the first mistake we want to avoid. don't, Don't overreact to legalism. Verse one says, Then Jesus, still likely in the temple in Jerusalem, where he will be for the last time before he's crucified, said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Scribes and Pharisees, there's some overlap. The scribes are the Bible experts. They're supposed to know the law of God and tell the people not only what it says, but how to apply it. And so they're, they're the Bible scholars. Um, and the Pharisees are those who follow after them. We could say that scribes are Pharisees, but not all Pharisees are scribes. You want me to say that again? I won't. All right. <laughs> There's some overlap, in other words. Not everyone's qualified to be a scribe, but the, the Pharisees are committed to following the scribes' teachings. Okay? They're, they're conservative, if you will. In fact, they want to be so conservative. This is what the Bible says, and we're going to make sure no one disobeys and everyone obeys, so we're going to add extra rules sometimes. By this point, by the time they're done, scholars tell us, it would take up to 50 volumes to record all of their ways in which you must live in addition to what the Bible says or how to live it out. And so they love themselves some obedience, if you will. So Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, if you think about who, who Moses is, Moses is known for being the one who is the law man. Okay, God gives the law to Moses. And in the synagogues, not here in the temple, think synagogues, think uh, in the, the local communities. So if you can't go to the temple for a special occasion, you are going to gather for worship, gather for instruction if you're a Jew in the first century. So you go to your local synagogue. And in the local synagogue, there's a special seat. There's a special chair, some of your translations say. Uh, and it's the place where the teacher teaches. 
And unlike our day where the teacher stands up typically, uh, there the people are going to stand and the teacher is going to sit, the official designated seat, the chair of Moses. That's where authority lies. When someone sits down to teach there, it's a thus saith the Lord kind of moment. You're going to hear the Bible read and expounded. Okay, so Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Then let's keep reading. So, so as in because, logic, so because they occupy the chair of Moses or the seat of Moses, so do and observe whatever they tell you. The overreaction that we don't want to commit, that we want to avoid would be, there are bad actors, scribes and Pharisees, but since they are Bible people, let's reject the bad actors and let's reject the Bible. That would be the overreaction that Jesus is warning against. Okay? They are bad actors. Jesus is going to let them have it publicly and be crucified in part because of that. Humanly speaking. But it's so easy to think, well, since they're the bad guys who've done all of these bad things, and Jesus will talk about those things, and they're also known as the Bible guys, therefore the Bible is bad. Bad conclusion. It's the wrong conclusion. Jesus says, seed of Moses. Jesus isn't anti-law. Jesus is not a, Jesus doesn't hate on Moses. Okay. Jesus is a fan of Moses, which doesn't make any sense, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Bad theology. <laughs> Did you get the idea? Remember back when in, in chapter 5, uh, Jesus talks about the law, which would be associated with Moses? I didn't come to erase the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I, I'm not one who hates on the law. In fact, I came, what does he say? I came to fulfill the law. I, I'm so for it. It's true, righteous and holy. I came as the one who will fulfill it. So it would be a wrong overreaction to say, well, bad actors, Bible, therefore Bible bad. Don't go there. Jesus says, do what they say if what they're saying is from the book. I think this has a big place of application in my life, in your life probably as well, because the longer you're a Christian... The more you watch people who you really respected as a Bible teacher, let's say, and for whatever reason, legalism or licentiousness, you don't respect them anymore because of what they do or because of something they begin teaching. So it could be easy in our minds to say, I associate Bible with that man or woman. Therefore, I don't want any place in my life with the Bible because of all the bad that I associate with it. Right? It's pretty easy application. I mean, it's an important, it's important application. Actually, really important application. I've had opportunity to remind people, hopefully with a warm heart, just because this person lets you down in that way doesn't mean everything they taught you was wrong. Maybe some things were. Doesn't mean it all is. Important for us to keep in mind. Do what they say. Do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, before we... Oh, I'll give you one historical example that's, that's a, a fascinating one. 
So lots of us are fans of the Protestant Reformation um, for good reason. Um, one group of bad actors during that time would have been uh, those labeled as the radical Anabaptists. And the radical Anabaptists overswung, if I'm saying it right. They, 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 they threw the baby out with the dirty bathwater. And they didn't come to be reformers to reform. They just wanted to flush the whole thing. And so therefore, the radical Anabaptists, some of them, some famous ones, Rome believed in the Trinity, therefore we don't. Rome believed in the deity and humanity of Christ, therefore we don't. Rome believed in having formal church gathering, therefore we don't. And here's the one we're going for. Rome believed in the Bible as God's word, therefore we don't. That would be an overreaction, an overswing, and not a very good look. And historically now we say, you know what, that, that, that was an overswing. Those things were actually biblical, and the idea would be better to reform, not to throw the whole thing away and commit all of these crazy errors. So just because there are bad actors doesn't make the Bible bad, in other words. Fair? Now, before we move on, I would just remind you of the significance of interpreting what Jesus says here in the greater context. Because what I'm not going to do is absolutize, isolate this and absolutize this uh, and take it out of context. Do whatever they tell you. I'm, I, I have to interpret that as do whatever they tell you that's from the Bible. <laughs> do whatever they tell you that is biblical. And I have to do that because I think otherwise crazy things are going to happen. But to be honest with you, I know Jesus has already warned in Matthew 15 of the problem of these same bad actors adding to the Bible and he dresses them down for it and he teaches, in essence, when you add to the Bible, then you don't have the other stuff and he, the, 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 what the Bible actually teaches loses its importance. So he's already gone after them for that. So I, in my Bible, I would write Matthew fifteen six in the margin of Matthew 23, if I'm not writing the Bible kind of person. Uh, in Matthew fifteen six, it says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So... I think, do what they say, listen to them, obey them when they tell you what to do, provided it's in Scripture. I don't think Jesus is mandating that the, his listeners and disciples are enslaved to all of the legalism or obligated to keep any of those things. So do and observe whatever they tell you, I put in brackets, whatever is from Moses, whatever is actually biblical, do and observe those things. Ready to move on to number two? First one. Legalism is bad. Legalists are bad. They bring great harm to people. But just because they say they believe the Bible and they're legalists doesn't mean the Bible is legalistic or bad. So let's move on to number two. Avoid their compassionless hypocrisy. Avoid their compassionless hypocrisy. It says in verse 3, but not the works they do. So, so do and observe what they tell you, provided it's actually true and right and biblical, but not the works they do. D don't act like them, though, for they preach but do not practice. Which makes all the sense in the world. Don't be the gross hypocrites like they are. Don't be like that. The word hypocrite is one Jesus is fond of using, uh, and it means actor. 
So they're pretending to be all about God, and they're pretending to be all about the good of the people, and they're pretending, oh, we're waiting for Messiah to come, the ultimate David, the ultimate deliverer, and all of those such things. And, and Jesus is saying, they're, they're hypocrites. Don't, don't be like them. They're, they're, they're not true in those things. It's a public persona. It's a face, but it's not real who they actually are. And if there's anything that fuels the fire of, of God's displeasure, if you will, in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's this religious leaders who are hypocrites business. Read Isaiah 1. Read Jesus. And it's not like this is a slight infraction. It's not like, well, you know, nobody's perfect because nobody is perfect. Since the fall of Adam, apart from Jesus, nobody's perfect. So, but Jesus isn't saying, well, but yeah, he's not addressing that. This is gross negligence, in your face, um, hypocrisy. How about let's keep reading how compassionless it is as well. Verse four, verse four says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Now, if I didn't know better, I would think that's a typo. What do they do? They, they tie up heavy loads, massive burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on oxen is how it should read. They lay them on donkeys, beasts of burden. They're, they're made for such things. Well, it's not a typo. It's, it, it's meant to catch our attention. That's what you do to animals. Not to people made in God's image. That's how you deal with animals. And not only that, sometimes, I don't know if he has this idea in mind or not, but you'll get the idea. That's what people do to animals. And if they're abusive to their animals, they just keep loading it on. And then when the animal collapses, they beat the animal. They scold the animal. It's gross. The Bible says you shouldn't be pugnacious or you can't be qualified to be a a pastor, I almost got in a fight this week, I confess to you. Because somebody, someone was abusing their dog and it made me so mad, I just couldn't deal with it. I said, you're going to hurt your dog, man. Stop it. <laughs> God looked at me like he was going to punch me. So anyway, I confess my sin. Um, <laughs> here, it's not abusing the animal or maybe rightly u- using the animal. I don't know which. But the image is true nonetheless. The image is, you're doing this to human beings and it ought not be so. You're giving them, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, and the people can't bear it. They're not being shepherds, they're being abusers, spiritually speaking. The way good legalists, quote unquote good legalists, wink wink, do sometimes. I already mentioned by now, or by the time the scribes are done, some 50 volumes adding up all the additional things. We've seen glimpses of it in chapter 12 of Matthew. No grain picking when you're traveling, because that would be harvesting. Right. We've seen it in chapter 12. Don't heal someone on the Sabbath unless they're going to die, because that would be work. Or wash your hands according to some sacred tradition in a certain way. Otherwise, you're extra ungodly, chapter 15. And so they've been about this, and we've seen examples of this. And the reality is they keep putting all these burdens on other people, and we're going to see they don't do them themselves, which is how it goes with legalism sometimes. How about verse 4 where it goes on to say, but they themselves. So the burden makers, the oppressors, 
but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. It's all about those they control. You must, you must, you must, you can't, you can't, you can't. And they themselves, they don't follow those rules. And maybe the other idea is in mind here. They don't even lift a finger when it comes to helping the people handle these things. Pretty devastating. And we're going to see it's lots of externals. Now, I want to pretend for a moment. It's risky to pretend. Let's pretend for a moment like these leaders have not added the 50 volumes. Let's pretend like they've just stuck to the scriptures. Telling people, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Could that be a form of legalism? I would say yes. God's not a legalist, but God has lots of laws. He definitely does. So let's pretend like they haven't added the extra 50 volumes, but they just keep telling people God requires this. Chapter and verse. God requires this. Chapter and verse. God forbids this. Chapter and verse. God forbids this. Chapter and verse. They could be telling the truth about all of those things and still be legalists because they're talking to sons and daughters of Adam. And if God requires those things and you must do them, you're either going to be utterly in despair, the collapsing animal who can't bear the burden, or you're going to be like the Pharisees who are self-righteous and they think they can. But I at least want to entertain that thought with you, the idea with you, you can be a legalist apart from the 50 volumes. And here's why this is really important. While God required lots of things, and he still requires lots of things. God also provides redemption in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We know that it's true. Romans chapter 4, quoting the Old Testament. Who, what two major characters from the Old Testament are used as examples in Romans 4? Abraham. Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He was, it was credited to him as if he were a perfect obeyer of God's law. All of these religious leaders would have to do is lift a finger, if you will, effort-wise to tell the people that. So full, full, full permission to say God requires, God requires, God requires. But it's just going to take a little bit of effort saying while he does just know that Abraham, Father Abraham, Believe God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, or David. Same thing. Paul uses them as examples in the Old Testament. Religious leaders, in our vernacular, the way we talk, could be legalists if they only give law, even if it's pure law, just Bible law. And they don't talk about God's gracious provision of substitutionary atonement of gospel. So we have to remember that and keep that in mind. I could be a foaming at the mouth legalist and only quote Bible verses. 
absolutely could. I could be good at it. In fact, it might be even all the more deceptive. We don't use the 50 volumes. We're Omaha Bible Church. Only the Bible. Hmm. Just takes a little bit of effort to help the people who are so burdened. And I'm thinking about Jesus now. Remember in chapter 11, and I don't apologize for referencing this so often. (laughs) Jesus says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, like that animal. And by the way, as I heard someone say this week, I'll borrow it. Everyone is heavy burdened. We might not admit it, but everyone is because we all have a load of sin or obligation uh, to keep God's commandments. And we don't, so there's sin. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are burdened like that, and I will give you rest. Because he is the one who bears the burden. He fulfills, chapter 5, the obligation. Don't be like those guys who don't help people with their great burdens. Sometimes my practice on Sundays, after I'm all done with everything, I'll find a a Sinclair Ferguson sermon on the same text or someone like that that I really respect, and I'll go ride my bike or do whatever or work out just to... If, if you will be ministered to, and there's always something I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that before. I don't, I don't want to be a, the, the plagiarizer pastor. Uh, so I do my work first. <laughs> but I was listening to a man preach yesterday and he talked about this very thing. And he talked about imputed righteousness. And I thought, oh yeah, what a great sermon. Credited righteousness. He connected the dots with Abraham, David, Romans 4, Genesis. The answer to the legalism is not, we don't have have any obligations. The answer to legalism is not antinomianism, no law. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus who bears the burden. And we can be thankful for him. What a delightful contrast. What a delightful contrast. And if you've come out of legalism... Uh, no show of hands, please. <laughs> to, to, to hear the words of Jesus, come to me and I will give you rest, are some of the greatest words ever. The one who meets the obligation, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, one, so wonderful. Let's move on. Are we on number three? Okay, all right, number three. <laughs> Third mistake believers need to avoid when dealing with legalists is to avoid their pride. Avoid their pride. Verses 5 to 12. uh, And I just want to give you a fair warning. Jesus is going to use examples. And examples get you in trouble. Okay? Sometimes well-meaning Christians will say, Well, Pastor, I wish you'd give us more application. And so then I try to give you more application. And you say, Pastor, are you you mad at us? (laughs) Are you in a bad mood? Um, Or... I kid a little bit, but Jesus is going to start calling out real life examples and it gets uncomfortable. And I imagine it could even get a little uncomfortable in here for some of us. Avoid their pride. Don't be like them. How about verse five? They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Pretty big statement. It's about show for them. They want to have their face on the jumbotron. It's this pompous parade of spirituality. Look at me. Then verse 5 says, For they make their phylacteries broad. Who, have you seen phylacteries before? 
Um, if you go with us to Israel, you'll see him on the plane, that's for sure. Um, and in Israel, so the Jewish people, depends on literal or not literal. Um, some commentators think this was never meant to be taken literally. Others think it's meant to be taken literally. But from Exodus 13, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the phylacteries, the small leather or parchment box, and it contained, it contained animal skin with four texts from God's law. So they were to keep it in their, their, their minds and always meditate on it and remember God and remember God's promises. And so phylacteries, they either wrap them around their arm or they tie them around their head. Okay, these leather bands. Well, it's one thing to have them and take it literally. Maybe that's okay, but they make theirs big. They, 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 they go biggie size, right? Uh, double XL for me, please. And we get the idea. They, they, it's, it's one thing to do it, and then it's another thing to say, look at me. Ah, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm godly. I'm better than you are. Mine are bigger. And then at verse 5 it says, and their fringe is long. So on their garments they have fringe, and it's long. Well, Numbers chapter 15 actually instructed the Israelites to have these tassels to remember the commandments of the Lord. It says in Numbers 15, make for yourselves tassels on the corners of your garments throughout their generations that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it's all about having them be reminders. But Jesus isn't condemning that. He's condemning the fact that they make theirs extra long. Oh, extra godly. Look at me. It's about the external. With legalism, oftentimes more is always better. Then verse 6 it says, and they love the place of honor at feasts. Public persona. Look at me. Special table. Verse 6, and the best seats in the synagogues. I listened to one pastor talk. He was preaching through this and he comes from a church tradition where they have a massive, giant, fancy chair up on the stage. They even called the throne. And it was funny. He was getting uncomfortable trying to explain the passage, almost like criticizing the tradition, but he's a part of it. So we had to be careful. He said something like, maybe next week we'll have a milking stool up here because that would be more fitting. Uh, again, sometimes things hit close to home, the way we do things. Uh, Mark's gospel account in chapter 12, verse 38, says they like to walk around in long robes. Well, maybe everybody wore robes. I wouldn't say always and never, but they went extra long, fancy robes because I'm a religious leader. Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Not too long ago, it's been maybe several years, I was just trying to find the argument for robes. Not because I wanted to do robes per se, but I was just curious as to what's the, what's the biblical rationale. At least one guy was honest. Uh, he said, and I quote, the pastor represents Christ. Oh, well, I guess that would make sense. That you're going to dress different if you represent Christ to people. Verse 7 says, and they also love greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, official titles we're going to hear about and greetings in the marketplaces with the official title. Verse 7 says, and they love being called rabbi by others. Teacher, teacher with authority, teacher who's spiritually superior to all others. Hits pretty close to home. I'll let you in on just a little secret. When we have special guest speakers and they come here and they have 
academic credentials and I'm thankful for them. I'm not down. I, I'm all about those things and studying and doing important things like that. Uh, but even if they have 14 letters behind their name, if their name is Don, I'm not going to introduce them as doctor. I'm going to introduce them as Don. Now, maybe you don't have as an une- uneasy conscience as I do, but I just can't bring myself to do it. Jesus is going to say, and he's, where he's going with this is, we're spiritual equals, even if some are gifted to teach, even if some are gifted and called to lead. We're spiritual equals. And where he's going to go, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, because eventually it seems that we blur the line between that spiritual leader and Christ himself. And so we're to think of one another as brothers and sisters with variant giftedness, yes. So it's no wonder Jesus is, is, is fired up about this. I called to talk to a pastor, that's a long time ago now, and, and if you'd like to speak to Dr. So-and-so, press three or whatever. And I was like, hung up. <laughs> I call medical doctors doctor, but I'm not going to call a pastor doctor. Again, maybe I'm being legalistic. But I've got an uneasy conscience. But you are not... I had enough. I'm telling all kinds of stories about this. I'll never forget hearing one seminary professor and a student said, um, uh, hey, hey, he was following him or, following him or something, a dick. And he said call me doctor, I earned it. I thought, hmm, interesting. Again, maybe I'm being uptight, legalistic about this. I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. But let's be careful. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, that is like master teacher, superior teacher, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. I don't think Jesus is saying there's no such thing as giftedness, because in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he, Christ, gave to the church teachers. I don't think he's saying that. But to have this official kind of title where you have to address people as better than you, I'm so uncomfortable with that. Titles of exaltation are not healthy in the church. Then another example, verse 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. I would just let the cursor blink on that one for a second. Reading it in context, in light of chapter 15, I think you should call no one father except your father. Now, I'm reading into it, but Jesus does in chapter 15 talk about honor your father and mother. And I don't think Jesus is contradicting himself. So, you can call your father, father. (laughs) I think Jesus is good with that. He's talking about spiritual authorities. And at best, they're your spiritual sibling. And so don't call a spiritual authority father. Doesn't make any sense. Now, lest you run off and think you're ready to go dunk on people spiritually, um, it's a little bit complicated in that if you came to me 
and said, you call religious leaders father and look at this text. I think you'd be doing the right thing. My informed response, if I'm a good responder, would be to say, the Apostle Paul talked about Timothy, his child in the faith. So just be careful. I think dunking on people is okay. (laughs) But there's a little bit of nuance involved. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So sometimes those things are utilized. But that's a far cry from Paul saying, and refer to me as Father Paul. Different animal. That's not, that, that would be in violation of what Jesus says. So I told you application gets, gets controversial. He is calling them out on this stuff. Why? Because he's in a bad mood? No. Because he wants to help the disciples and the masses not end up being like the Pharisees and worthy of the woes of condemnation. Okay, let's get things wrapped up here. Verse 10, neither be called instructors, uh, official teacher, official leader, superior teacher, superior leader, for you have one instructor. I love it. The Christ. See, that's why this is such a problem. Because before you know it, we were just trying to give honor where honor is due. And that's good to give honor where honor is due. But before you know it, now all of a sudden, they have taken the place of mediator. They've taken the place of the one who delivers you, who provides for you ultimately spiritually, because that's what a Christ, a Messiah does who protects you and all of those kinds of things in an ultimate sense. And so Jesus really lays down the gauntlet, brothers and sisters, family, family as in siblings, because there's only one Christ. And you start muddying the waters when it comes to these things, and it's not good. It's not good. Reminds me of that guy who justified the robe, represents Christ. That's the very thing he's trying to go against here. The very thing. Okay, how about verse 11? The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the rationale. That's why he's driving this whole thing where he's driving it. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Who do you suppose that refers to? How about, how, how, how about there's, there's two sides to that coin. Who is the greatest one among them? Peter? No. (laughs) The greatest one among them? You've you've got it right. It's, It's him. It's Jesus. He is the greatest one and he is among them. And then keep going where he says, Among you shall be your servant. He's the promised servant. He's the suffering servant. He's the Isaiah uh, Isaiah prophesied servant. And what is he going to do? He's going to serve them. By giving himself up for them. Remember chapter 20, I think it is. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And how does he do it? To give his life as a ransom for many. I'm the great one. And the great one of all is going to serve in the greatest capacity of all by giving his life as an atoning sacrifice for you. You want to talk about great? Greatness is in the great servant. Then it goes on to say, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
And that last part definitely would have a view toward Christ as well, but then a view toward his disciples eventually. He's going to humble himself. Think Philippians chapter 2 to the point of death, even death on a cross, the lowest self-humbling. But because he does what he does and he's the successful savior, God highly exalts him through the humiliation. And it applies to Jesus first, because he's the greatest one among them, but he no doubt is teaching his disciples, those who will belong to Christ, to think this way and to have this kind of perspective. If we're followers of Christ, we bear the name Christian. We want to imitate him. Look at me, how awesome and great I am. Call me brother, pastor, so-and-so, reverend. No, that's crazy. The humble one. And so what do we do? We imitate Christ because he's our great savior. And so we want to humble ourselves knowing that at the proper time, and the Bible does teach this, we will be exalted. We will be resurrected and we will rule and reign with Christ because he's our good and faithful spiritual elder brother. The book of Hebrews would have us to know. So I hope this is, this encourages you. It's not meant to be a scolding. Okay, now if the Pharisees are listening, they see a scolding is coming. Okay, this is going to rub us the wrong way if we're into legalism and if we're into being in control and manipulation. But what it's meant to do is protect and help and encourage. So when Jesus does next week in the next section, let the bad actors have it. We know that he's not mad at us if we belong to him by faith in his son. But we do know he's mad at them. Don't be like them. So be sure to bring safety belt next time. Um, it's going to be pretty intense, but it is because he loves us that we have these things. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. There's so much we don't know and there's so many mistakes that we make and so many imperfections in our lives and yet you've given us sound minds to be able to read your word, to read it in context, to seek to understand it. Help us to not think of ourselves as better than others uh, and to sit in judgment of others, but help us to listen to Jesus when he does that very thing and to agree with Jesus when he does such things. Our desire would be to live for the glory of Christ. We know that we can only do that by the power of the Spirit. Help us to walk humbly by faith for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.